Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. Brought to you by Telefunken Electroacoustic. Telefunken Electroacoustic has been following the tradition of excellence and innovation set forth by the original Telefunken GmbH of Germany that began over 100 years ago with one foot rooted in the rich history of the brand and the other in new microphone innovations for both stage and studio applications. Telefunken Electroacoustic is recognized as one of the industry leaders in top quality microphones. For more info, go to t-funk.com. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Diamond God, Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at NailTheMix.com. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. Today with me is Mr. Eliran Kantor, which is an artist, illustrator that's crafted some of the most striking and well-known art in metal for like the past 10, 15 years. His work can be seen on albums by bands like Arcspire, The Artist Murder, I Star Testament, Hatebreed, Guar, and I mean, I could basically spend this entire podcast talking about it. So instead of that, I'm just going to welcome you on. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. How about you? Doing great. <laughs> I want to talk about what you what we were just talking about because I know that scheduling this podcast has been a bit of a nightmare. Um, and yeah. You said that Josta actually flies to every location? I'm not sure if he flies to every location. I think he just bundles them together in like clusters. He just flies to one location and meets a few of his guys that he knows that live around this area. Um, and I think he records from the road as well. But that's just from listening to his podcast. That that makes sense. I'm trying to imagine adding even more travel to my schedule would be insane. But last week, uh, or this week, it was this week actually, I went to LA to do a podcast in person with uh, Patrick Stump, a uh, singer from Fall Out Boy. And I... It, I enjoyed doing it in person. We've only done like three of these in person, and I kind of like it better. But the just man, I travel so much as is. <laughs> I can't imagine doing more. I imagine. I mean, you get like another uh, dimension of human interaction. You see, you look each other in the face. You see like the hands and like the hand movements and gestures and the facial expression. Yeah. I get why people do it. That's true. However, there's another side to that equation, which is that if you're talking to someone that's shy All right. or has social anxiety, which is a lot of people in music. Do I need to raise my hand at this point? I mean, oh, I'll, yeah, raise, yeah. I'll raise mine too. Right. Uh, and so will probably about 90% of the people listening. Sometimes I think that the guests are more comfortable not seeing somebody and just talking, you know, like we're doing now, audio only, um, it they don't get as anxious. You should like break the ice by, I mean, making a, a weird, awkward entrance when you meet them, <laughs> just slip on something and fall down. <laughs> That's a great idea. 
I'll uh, I'll do that. And you'll get better with it with each and every time you'll do it. I'll start practicing now so that by the time we're like 50 in, uh, I can reduce the amount of broken bones. I just did the same thing with an awkward joke. It's the same thing. <laughs> so the, the so keep practicing. Yeah, this is the my more, version of sleeping on a banana peel. The more you, an, a lame dad joke, yeah. The more you do it, the better it gets. Awful show. <laughs> yeah, speaking of something that you get better at as you go along. So, well, see, so watch this segue. Uh, how long have you been an artist? Nice. Uh, how long? Sounds uh, skillful. I don't know. I've been making pictures ever since I was a kid. Uh, when I was maybe three or four, I started drawing on the walls. My dad used to draw and paint. He painted the walls on my, of my bedroom when I was a kid. He painted like Disney characters, and he was like a really big Pink Floyd fan, so he painted his walls with characters from the wall, from the movie, or from the inner gatefold, if you remember the uh, the vinyl version. And I just kept on making pictures. Uh, when I was in elementary school, I used to paint with pencils a lot. Then afterwards, I enrolled when I was like 10, I think. I enrolled into like a bi-weekly junior art classes, where I was taught the very basics of like perspective and using different mediums and such. And afterwards, when I was in my teen years, I got into into the music scene and I started out by painting on other people's walls. I made murals. I painted mostly like album covers in my friend's bedrooms and some of them had bands. So other people's album covers? Yeah, I would paint like Maiden okay. album covers, like Merciful Fate and King Diamond album covers on my walls and my friends were into like Man World or like death metal stuff. And some of them had bands. So when they needed an album cover for their band, and this is like I'm talking about age 17, I started making the album covers for their bands as well and just kept on going from that point on. It was never like set up to be a career or something. I just, I mean, the next day came and I had another job waiting for me. So I just moved on from that point. And here I am like, how much? Like 18 years later. I was actually, when I was 17, I thought I was going to be in music production. I thought I would be an engineer. I actually like bought a very small uh, setup and recorded like a demo for my friends' bands. I can't remember. I used some some software that I kept on uh, going with like the 30-day trial, and I got this uh, amplifier simulator. I don't know if you know it, uh, J Station by Johnson. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was of like course. before before <laughs> yeah. the the pod even. I, I remember those. I recorded one demo for my friends' band, which was like a crazy band. They sounded like a mixture of like pop-punk, but I'm talking like Blink-182, and technical death metal. So they had like crazy drumming in the background, sounded like the drummer is playing a totally different song, and they had like solo breaks, which sounded like Alan Allsworth, and I totally butchered the demo sound-wise, but we were all 17. So I guess a bunch of bands didn't start showing up at your door kind of like they did no the try the 30-day trial on my program <laughs> was done and that's it that was the- i was never so good at that no seriously and i would get like i could see that moving on i would get like ear fatigue plus i'm not very musical i've got like hard time keeping time and being with the right pitch and everything so i was just i was always into music i was always into records and so much 
I was so interested in bands' biographies, and I was a real music nerd more than I've ever been an art nerd, but I was just not very good at it. So when you say that the bands all just started showing up, did you ever do any advertising at all, or has it literally all been word of mouth for the past 18 years? It was, in the beginning, it was a combination of word of mouth and solicitating. I would just email everybody. I would email managers, I would email labels, I would email bands. I would send messages on MySpace back then as well. So, yeah, that was the only thing I've ever done. I don't, don't think I've ever advertised. And how many people would get back to you when you were basically carpet bombing them with uh, emails and messages? I think one out of maybe like 50. So that was rough. And you had to deal with a lot of like rejection, basically. So even those who write you back, it's like a slim chance that they'll move on to working with you. Because back then, my portfolio was basically nothing. I had some of my wall paintings that I did on my friend's walls and a couple of records that I did, and that was basically it. Did anything big come out of that? Or did most of it come from the ones that you knew in person or who were friends with other bands and then told their friends to go with you? Basically, the big change in my career was when I started working with Testament, and that was... Uh, a result of me emailing um, Maria Ferrero used to um, manage Lamb of God. You probably know her from her PR company, Adrenaline. Yeah, yeah, I know her. I emailed her about doing artwork for Lamb of God, and she also managed Testament back then. So she got me in touch with Eric, and that's what started our collaboration. So I guess it does work sometimes. It does work, but it's it's a fluke. I mean, but it's totally worth it. When I'm thinking about all those countless emails that I've sent back then, I mean... Yeah, God knows where I would have been if I didn't do the the Testament album and the other three that we've done together since. Well, how many years of sending emails relentlessly and doing local bands covers? Like, how how many years of that went by before the Testament thing happened? I can't remember. I guess around three or four at this point. But it was I was doing other stuff. Um, simultaneously because I was uh, in the beginning I started it when I was 17 and then at 18 I was living in Israel so you get drafted at 18 and then you go to the army for three years I used to do like website design as well for bands back then and afterwards I got a job working for an advertising company and I would do I would be like the youngest art director they had I would direct like the national campaigns for stuff like uh, Toys R Us and Pizza Hut. And then I would come back at home late at night at like 10 and walk on metal album covers. And after a year, I just, I quit in order to focus on that metal album, on those metal album covers. Were you making enough money from the metal album covers to reasonably quit? No, no. When I quit, I basically had to take that risk that I'm going to make about like four times less than in my job in the advertising world. But that was great because I just took out a new lease for a year in like this new apartment and I had to make it work because now I've got rent coming at the end of the month and I've got no safety net. So I got to make it, I have to make it work. And this is how I started. I mean, you call it a hustle, but it was, I don't know, I was just, as you said, carpet bombing everybody, talking to all of my friends and starting to slowly 
building it up from from that point on. So it's just when you had time. Yeah, you just kept you just kept the momentum going. Yeah, I had to because this was my my biggest passion. It still is. This was something I was always obsessed about. And I just, I mean, I just in the last few years I've come to turn with you know the way that you need to realize that your shortcomings, your flaws. I mean, f- you can fight them, but you can embrace them and figure out that those were those had a big part in what made you successful or what what made some of the stuff you made successful. Because I was always obsessed. I was always so much into I don't know, reading too much, thinking too much, being anxious, being I don't know, never leaving a project behind. Always thinking about it stuff, and it made me, you know, not a fun guy to be around. I would not listen to anybody. I would just be nervous and anxious all the time. But it made it so that when I was working on things, it was it translated into attention to details. It was translated into becoming this. I don't know. I I'm basically a library of every album cover I've ever seen. And when I'm thinking about a concept for an album cover, I have this like very great filter because I remember. Each and every time I saw a concept on another record, so this is how I come up with original stuff that I know I haven't seen in any other place. You know what you're what you're saying right now. I think is exactly the same. If you want to get great at an instrument, or great at mixing, or even start a company like URM, uh, people ask me all the time how to do any of those, and I really think that the number one thing is that you have to be super obsessed with it to the point of, you know, to the point of kind of fucking up other parts of your life. It's kind of impossible to really be as obsessed as you need to be to push something forward and be a totally balanced person. For sure. I've never met anyone who is. There's this weird myth that's... uh, you know, you see it on social media a lot, and you see a lot of self-help books about it, about balance, and oh yeah, you know all that. It's all bullshit <laughs> because. Th- and you know what? If you get good at your craft, it fixes everything else. That's true. If you get so good at your craft, you don't need to worry about the growth of your Instagram account, or not being good at networking, or being even like being a punisher. You know what? Well, what's a punisher? I've met a guy in like a party a few like months ago he shared with me tons of stuff about his personal life he asked me a lot of questions he wanted to spend a lot of time with me he wanted to do something together in the future also known as the collab let's collab bro how's that collab coming along it'll be somewhere in the future but the thing is he was a musician that i really admired so all of these attributes sound like a classic punisher but because he just got so good at his craft I was really into it, and I wanted to hear what he has to say about his personal life, and I was enjoying this conversation about getting so many questions and spending so much time together. So yeah, it just it'll fix everything else that you would spend so much time thinking how to become better at marketing, better at networking, better at growing your Instagram account. Just just get better at your craft, and it will be worth it at the end because if your main passion is your craft, be it artwork or music or whatever, and all the other stuff you do only to supplement your career, then you'll, you'll reap like great benefits out of focusing on what you really care about. 
and getting everything else done automatically from that point. I have a very similar story. Um, back when I was in my band, me and the other guitar player went on somebody's bus, mm-hmm. and the main guy in the band, who I had never met before, recognized us immediately. And he, I'll say who it is in a second, but he came up to us, and he was like, told us exactly what kind of guitars we play, and was just asking us a million questions about this and that, and about the, mm-hmm. the, the guitar album we just put out and it just went on and on and on but i didn't care because it was devin townsend and it blew me away exactly (laughs) yeah so if it was in another situation i'd probably be flattered but it would be a bit much Mm -hmm. um but because it was him it was totally cool and he's like a prime example of an obsessed guy i just met him uh, like uh, a week ago because we have been working on a record for like three years at this point, but it's on the back burner. It's the penis symphony that he's been developing, <laughs> it's the, the moth, but it's going to be amazing. I've heard, uh, I've heard the first few demos like maybe three years ago, but that's Devin. It's going to do it when he feels like it, but he's yeah. amazing. I was always a major fan of his, and when he wrote me, I was it was so flattering to just get an email from this guy. Yeah, that, that he even knows you exist. It was cool. Yeah, he was introducing himself. It was like, I'm Devin, I released a few records, few Inside Out, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I've been to a few of your concerts. I own a lot of your albums. Yeah, let's do it. And it's going to be an amazing record. It's going to be, I don't know, it, it sounds like a combination of Godflesh and Stravinsky. I, I actually am looking forward to hearing that. D- does it ever get, has it stopped being weird to you to get to work with uh, that level of artist, musical artist? Or does it still kind of blow your mind? I think it is. I, th- I, mean, I think when the music is good, then it still, it still blows my mind, yeah. I mean, uh, some of my records that I still to this day talk about it when people ask me which records have you been in I lean towards saying the stuff that maybe it's not like my best artwork but that's like the music I like best and I bring up the the album I did with Anacruzis which is one of my favorite bands I bring up the albums I did with Psy and the album I did with Atheist were you on that Atheist album as well? No I was not because I remember we did a few albums together. Um, yeah, but not that one. Uh, I know why you would think I was, but I was not. Um, I was involved with the people who were on that one. Oh, okay. Because I think what we did together was a Dark Sermon and that's right, Ender's Game. Ender's Game. I wonder if they're still together. I have no idea. They, I'm just saying because they were a band in Atlanta that had already been together mm-hmm. for like 10 years when my band was first getting together. Mm-hmm. And they outlasted us <laughs> by a, a long, long shot. Um, but Atheist was kind of in that same clique as everyone from Death and Cynic and Florida. And yeah. I was kind of in my own little way in that click too. So I can see how you would have thought that. I think it was just because of the audio hammer connection. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, oh yeah, okay. But about the part of being obsessed, how do you know when you're taking it too far or when someone should stop being obsessed and just do something else? I have no idea. I've wondered about that. That's a good question. I mean, I don't know. I mean, to be so self-aware... It's got to be one of the hardest things to do because I've, I struggle with self-awareness as well. I, I don't know. Maybe you can 
But you know, thinking about it, the first few years, there were no signs of this ever turning into a career that I would one day be able to raise a family on and think about like the future. But I'm going back to the thing about my, my flaws and my shortcomings. I was always so immature. I was never thinking about what's the future going to be like? Is this going to be my future? Is this going to be my career? I would just always kept keeping on making pictures ever since I was a kid. So, I mean, eventually, this is what led me to this point because after a while, it just picked on and became a career all of a sudden. But everybody else would, for the, for the first few years, would have quit at at some point because there were no signs of this ever becoming something so serious. And it's just, I attribute it to this lack of awareness and lack of uh, maturity that just kept me driving. So what you're saying is if you were more mature and a lot more aware of reality of being an artist, for most artists, you may have quit? Yeah, because the odds are against you. And I mean... And reality is against you. You can see that like a few years have passed and your business is basically in a place where you can't sustain it for very long, for years. And I mean, it goes against every rationality you can think about. But here I am. Um, I turned this thing upside down after a few years and I'm glad I did. I'm, I'm glad I never quit. So I have no idea what to say to somebody who doesn't know when to quit. I think that the higher the stakes, the the bigger you can fall. I mean, I could have wasted all of this time. I could have, I mean, at this point, I've got no other skills. I don't even have like a high school diploma. I've got nothing to fall back on. So it's a high risk that's, I mean, if you fall, that's a big fall. But if you win, that's, that can be something really special to be so happy with what you produce, to be so, I don't know, proud of uh, the point artistically that you uh, ended up in. It, it is a big gamble. Uh, did you really have zero clues along the way um, of what it would become? Uh, because you know what? I actually kind of had zero for a long time as well. And I just kept going and writing songs and learning about the industry and trying my studio. But I had zero, zero feedback for years and years that anything was ever going to work out. I just kind of knew it would. Um, but I know that there's lots of people who just kind of know that it will and it won't. Mm-hmm. So that's not a good... Indicator. It's not a good indicator, but the problem is that everything that felt like that about has worked out. So um, when I when people ask me about it, um, I tell them that, yeah, everything I've made happen is completely unrealistic, but I knew it was going to work out. And in my head, I knew it was going to work out because I had every step figured out. Um, like I knew exactly how it would work and it was just like a logic equation in my head. Um, and can you imagine yourself doing something else just because it would be like a safer bet? Fuck no. Exactly. Fuck no, absolutely not. So it's worth it at the end. And you know, even if you fail, that's, I don't know, that's experience. That I mean, Maybe you can channel it towards something else. I've definitely failed at a few things. Like for instance, URM started as UKM. Hmm. Uh, back in like 2012, uh, and it was a different 
type of thing. It was more for bands, and I realized very quickly that bands are terrible business and had to go back to the drawing board. I had several false starts. You know, I've started bands that have gone nowhere. Like, I've been fired off of a few records here and there. Everybody does at some point. But, like, what I'm saying is Mm -hmm. there's shit that falls apart or shit that doesn't work. I think that's true of everybody. But the one thing is that in any of those situations, I couldn't see how it was really going to work out. Every time that it's worked out, I have actually been able to to see it. But I have never had a plan B. Um, and I almost feel like if you worry too much about having a plan B, you're not going to put in enough work to plan A to make plan A happen. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's the same as like without a safety net. It's like you have to, it's like fight or flight. There's no other option. I think that contributed a lot to um, creating a situation where I was unable to just switch gears and do something else. I was unable to give up and live like a more comfortable life doing something that would be maybe more comfortable, but not as rewarding, not as challenging, etc. Well, you would have had to finish high school, right? And like kind of go do a bunch of things just to be able to kind of catch up to the normal world. Yeah. That sounds terrible. That sounds terrifying. Yeah. Because I remember in the... Now that I think about it, in the first few years, I would hear some stuff from my family going, and are you going to finish this high school diploma? Because they were worried about me. Well, understandably so. No, it, it makes perfect sense. But, but I don't know, it just fizzed out over the years. And, and now it's like a comforting thing to think about, that I managed to put this behind me. But you know what? Fear and anxiety is still a driving force because it can very might as well end tomorrow. Every new day, the fear and anxiety are there because even when I leave a piece, when I'm walking on artwork, what are the chances that everything on this piece is perfect? Because there are like a million trillion ways of having the composition and the details on it. What are the odds that what I did right now is like the perfect, the best outcome it could be. So when I step away from a piece of art, when I send it to the band, when it gets produced, the anxiety and fear is, is there as well. Because you never know when something is done. It's hard to let stuff go. Does it ever go away? I'm not sure. Because have you been listening to your old stuff? Absolutely not. I won't. Try it. it- no, hell no, I've already tried it. <laughs> every, every once in a while, I look at, uh, at like all the stuff and there's this thing in you that just wants you to pick it up and redo it in order to get it right because you're older, you're wiser, you're better technically and you have to let it go at some point because otherwise I would be just... Have you seen that uh, Mythbusters episode when they are episode where they are polishing a turd? No, I haven't. It turns out <laughs> that you can polish a turd. It shines. But it's still a turd. But it shines. It's very shiny and pretty to look at. And at the end of the day, this is what I do. You can't smell my stuff, but it can be shiny and pretty. If the rest of the world is happy with it, that's not enough? I, I have no idea. Because I never think... I mean, it's nice to get compliments. It's nice to be appreciated but I don't know I'm not the the most introspective guy I don't think about why I do it and what does feedback mean to me I just I just get these stories and uh, ideas in my head and and I want to get them out 
in a in some way I'm happy that I don't have like a deeper uh, connection with my feelings when it comes to art because I'm so emotionally invested as it is. If it if I would get so existential about it and so introspective about it, I would just lose my mind and get even more obsessed about it. Get, can you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And besides, let art teachers get obsessed with that part for you. Oh, yeah. So how long does it normally take you, say, from the moment a band like Testament contacts you until there's something finished? With a band like Testament, we usually start very early in advance. I mean, when we did like Dark Roots of Earth, we even had the artwork before the music was written. I mean, they had like a few riffs and a few paragraphs of maybe one song, I think. But they had the artwork already finished and they ended up like printing the album cover and hanging it up in at the rehearsal room and thinking about what music would fit this album cover. So this was like a huge compliment, but they're an anomaly. This is not the way we usually do things. What's usual? Oh, I think what is usual is that um, we have to wait a few months because of like prior booked uh, projects. And then when we start talking about concepts and when I start to make like rough drafts, it can range for like from a couple of weeks to more than a month. We usually start out with a raw black and white sketch that I do as quickly as possible just to get the composition down. I, I mean, I just draw a thumbnail. And once that gets green lighted, I move on to setting up the color scheme. And then when that g gets green lighted, I move on to details. So it's like basically those are the three main stages. And you said kind of around a month-ish. I mean, sometimes you've got more than it in order to um, get things right. I mean, when you have the luxury of working for more than a month, because as I said, with Testament, we started out so early that we had tons of time to go over the details, change a few stuff. I, I have no idea how many months it took, but that's only because we had the time. They kept on getting two offers and went out on tour, came back, recorded some more, went out on tour, recorded some more. So we ended up having these months, extra months to work on it. But that's not the, usually, the usual way we do it. So in audio, you know, revisions mean that everybody knows that you can change almost everything. And so sometimes revisions can be very, very long and very, very tedious. But I don't understand how that could possibly work with paintings. So what do you do if, you know, what you're sending isn't exactly what they were looking for? You have very long talks in the beginning. You, I mean, setting up expectations is very important because you need to make sure that you're all set up from the get-go and start off building stuff gradually with, as I said, do a thumbnail first, do a raw sketch first and move on to details only at the last, very last stage. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what kinds of questions you ask them in these long conversations? I mean, usually we go over the lyrics. We go over, um, if, the, if they contacted me, I'm just, I'm usually, I usually ask them, what are the stuff on my portfolio that you liked that made you write me? And so I can sense the, I mean, ballpark-wise, their taste in uh, visual art. 
I mean, we just have a, a normal conversation, usually about uh, what led them to record this album. I mean, where where were they mentally? In which state? I mean, I mean, is this album about anger and frustration? Is this album about whatever? I mean, what what was the driving force? Usually, you talk about the lyrical content because that 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 way it's easier for them to explain it in words. But listening to the pre-production samples and demos is very important to me because you can you can see colors in uh, in um, in sound, I think. And if you match it in the right way, then it can be something that will stand the test of time. I mean, to this day, Ride the Lightning sounds blue to me and Master of Puppets sounds brown. Interesting. Doesn't it? Yeah, it actually does when I think about it in Black Album. Sounds black, strangely enough. Do you ever encounter a scenario, because I know producers encounter this, mixers encounter this, where somebody asks you to do something in the style of somebody else. So they tell you all these album covers they love, Mm -hmm. and they want it to be like, you know, this meets this or something, or, you know, like H.R. Geiger meets... I don't know, Picasso <laughs> meets Morbid Angel, Alters of Madness cover or something. Yeah. Or, you know, like a bunch of stuff that's not you and uh, they want stuff that's not your style. Uh, mixers get this all the time when they'll play records from a bunch of bands that they love by one, that one guy mix to another mixer and they want him to mix it in that guy's style. It's like, well, why didn't you go to that guy instead? Uh, do you ever encounter that situation? I think this is something that happened uh, more frequently earlier on, but has gradually faded out with uh, with time. But even back then, I mean, it's, I mean, you know how it's like, I mean, at some point you need to say yes to every project you're offered and then you take a few of these. I think it's the same in like sound and, I mean, it's the same with every independent uh, small business that you, that you have. And with the time you get to be picky. You get to choose what you want to do. And sometimes if somebody says, I like your art, but my vision has a little bit of Giger in in it, a little bit of Pekshinsky or whatever, sometimes I'm a major fan of these artists as well, and I can see the essence of it and see why are they drawn to these artists and why I was drawn to these artists as well and how to incorporate it into what we do together in order to create something unique that stands on its own and doesn't feel like maybe it could feel like an homage but not like a ripoff not like a second rate giga did you have it uh, when you were just starting out that you had to swallow this frog and just even when i was not starting out um if the band was good sometimes uh i mean i would there are a few times where I said, well, just go to that other guy because I can't do this. Um, and it does happen less and less as you get, you know, as you build. Yeah. Because at the beginning, they're going to you not because they want to go to you. They're going to you because they can't reach or afford the person they really want. And so since you know that they can't do that anyways, they're kind of stuck, you're stuck with each other. And so I think that being the case, you should take the job just because they don't have a choice and you don't have a choice, really. Yeah. Um, but when you're bigger and the bands are bigger, it's better for everyone to be happy. Um, you don't want 
a bigger band to have a bad experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then go telling all their friends not to work with you. So I think it's a lot for self-preservation. It's important to send the right people away if there's somebody else who would be better for a job, I think. Yeah, but at, at the same time, you can look at it uh, from another direction and say, okay, maybe this is like a challenge for me. Maybe I was always into this producer and I wanted to get a little bit of his sound into my work as well and just use it as a way of experimenting a little bit and just broaden your, I mean, uh, sonic uh, vocabulary. Yeah, so where's the fine line? I mean, you have to set it. I mean, if, if you, you can feel it in your heart if you're um, excited about something. So my neighbor just wrote me earlier today that there's no word for excited in German, which makes perfect sense. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but, but, but basically, <laughs> if you're... I'm sorry, Germans. <laughs> if you're excited about it, then yeah. I mean, I think experimenting is something that is so dear to me in this in in this profession and in any artistic endeavor i think because i think that even in uh, art movement that you get like stagnation with time i usually contributed to lack of experimentation i can think you can see it in like modern metal even because after a while two things happened you know first thing is like modern production got to a point where people can just say okay we're so influenced by this band and our drummer really is really influenced by that band and they can pretty much get that same sound and once they get that same sound they stop experimenting and trying to figure out different stuff and before the technology was in this point i remember i used to go with bands into studios in the 90s and everybody would a b with uh, Far Beyond Driven. And nobody would get the same results because the technology was not there yet. So they had to tweak around until they got to a point where they stumbled upon something that just happened to work and sound good on its own. And I think it's the same thing with even like heavy metal vocals because at a certain point, if you remember, if you were listening to the first Metallica demo, James is singing like, melodic he wanted to sound like the new wave of british heavy metal he was going he the lights but it never worked because he has his flaws he couldn't quite pull it off so he had to experiment until the point where he was just shouting and that's how you get thrash metal and nowadays it feels like i mean i'm a huge fan of death metal and black metal and hardcore and i think the first couple of decades from each and every one of these genres each and every band was so unique and sounded nothing like all of their other peers. But today, people are just content with sounding professional, with sounding like their favorite screamers, sounding like their favorite death metal singers. I think what you're saying is right to a degree, but um, there's always going to be great artists. The only thing, like for instance, Arc Spire, yeah, are phenomenal at death metal. Sure. There's there's a lot of great bands like them that are coming around. Uh, but the difference between now and back in the past is that the little shitty bands that copy everybody didn't get as much of a chance to cause what I call static. They didn't basically cloud the waters. 
I don't think it's only the shitty bands because I, I've been going, I mean, at the end of every year, I go through bands for everybody's like end of year lists. And I listen to what everybody thinks their best 10 albums of the year or what 20 albums of the year were. And I can't tell these vocalists apart for the most, most of the time, even if the album is very highly regarded. And I think the key to this, to escaping this uh, stagnation is to keep your influences outside. I mean, you brought up Arkspire. I do agree with that. Arkspire basically sound like Origin and Busta Rhymes when it comes to the vocals. It's true. <laughs> so by harnessing outside influences, you get something original. This is, and this is why I said that the first few decades of death metal were guys who really sounded like themselves because basically it was a bunch of guys who watched tons of like horror movies and in each and every one of these horror movies, you have you have like the little girl in The Exorcist, and it's when she's possessed. You don't. It's not a growl. It's it's a pitch shifter effect. So they wanted to sound like the horror movies. They wanted to mimic the pitch shifter effect. So they had to experiment with their own voice until they reached something that sounded close to it, and that's how you got the first wave of like death metal singers. They wanted to push the envelope, sound scarier than the other guys, sound different than the other guys. And they never tried to sound exactly like the other guys because there was no bar set already. The influences were from the outside. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you remember, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics. And Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one -on -one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more. You know, the competition within Styles goes back to Beatles and Rolling Stones and Elvis, like, Bands, I agree completely that to create something new, it's usually you take two different things that didn't normally go together and you have something brand new. 
Um, but this competition between bands to, you know, outdo each other, that's will always be there and has always been there. No, the competition is great, but matching in the competition, just sounding, okay, I want to sound like exactly like my favorite bands. That's actually my point too, though, is that nowadays mm-hmm. way more of these bands have a chance to even be heard. So even if they're not doing something original, but they're doing something competent, yeah. uh, sometimes the listening, and I guess it's exactly what you said, that being professional is sometimes enough. But I think that that's why that's what you're hearing is that a lot of these copycat bands just they wouldn't have even had a chance in the older industry, but now they do have a chance and they have the internet and they're able to get they're able to get themselves out there. I do like the way things are now better, but no matter what system you're using, there's going to be a downside. The downside to the system before is that there were so few spots available for bands that great bands could go unnoticed um, because mm-hmm. There were that many outlets for bands. Nowadays, there's too many outlets for bands, so lots of mediocre bands get too noticed, um, which leads to the same problem, I guess, which is that a band like Arcspire, which is totally unique and awesome, doesn't get enough attention. Yeah. So you end up in the same it. place almost. But I don't know. I'm more worried about the peaks because, I mean, if, when you say that you prefer how things are today, if I go through your top 50 favorite albums of all time, how many of them are from the last few years? I wouldn't know because they haven't been around long enough, right? <laughs> I I can't tell you what my favorite albums of all time are involving the last five, ten years because it hasn't been long enough to say all time. Yeah, and maybe we just get older and we're becoming a little bit jaded as well, which makes sense. It could be, but I really do think there's a lot of great music out there being made. I do know what you're talking oh, sure. about. With uh, there was a time period when modern recording first started to get better and easier to access, like in the 2005 through 2013, 14, 15. That those ten years were the home recording explosion, and uh, suddenly all these people who were not qualified to be engineers or be in bands that were noticed were making music mm-hmm. and were getting noticed, and. Uh, it kind of started to, I don't know, it started to scare everyone into thinking that the sky is falling and that there's no future um, and that new bands are terrible. And I do think, and that, and that new productions are garbage. Um, and I think that that was very real for a little while. But I yeah. do think that it's starting to turn around. Like I think that that generation who created that garbage ha- is now starting to not be of age anymore. <laughs> I would love to get some recommendations from you to like exciting new, new stuff other than Alex Bio. Yeah, I'll give you some after the podcast for sure. I would love that, thanks. But I think that there's a new generation coming up who are just taking things further. It seems like music's getting more creative again. Um, and also the, uh, the income from music with streaming is starting to match what physical sales used to be. So for the first yeah. time in a long time, the industry starting to grow, which means that greater rewards means that uh, higher talent, like more capable talents are going to be attracted to making music. Whereas for the past 10, 15 years, a lot of people who were very talented were leaving music because they thought it had no future. But now you have a climate where there's rewards again, or the rewards are 
starting to accumulate again. And so you're going to see more talented people putting their talents into it. So I think it's headed in a good direction and I could be wrong. Yeah. And, but, but I get this, uh, the panic element of it because when something changes, I mean, uh, we have to reevaluate where we stand, where our future stands, who, who, are, who we are, etc. And even with, uh, you know, there are tons, there are tons of misconceptions about it because even with what I do, I get tons of questions about is visual art really needed in 2019 when it comes to, to music? And are you, I mean, people ask me, do you, do you even get any jobs? And I was like, the offers are better now than how they were back then. Because right now, because of this competition, bands are looking for ways to stand out. Because music at this point is uh, voluntary. You can just, I mean, you can be exposed to it if you listen to the radio. But if you get turned on to new music through social media, through talking to your friends, you have to agree to play this track. To I mean, if, you, if you're on Facebook and somebody shares their favorite song on YouTube, you have to make the decision to play it. But visual art is not voluntary at this point. You just get exposed to it. You go online and you see stuff. So this is people's opportunity to have something that will draw people in and make them listen to your, to your music. And you're an actual artist as opposed to just a graphic designer. And I think that you probably, in what you do, you experience the same thing that uh, we did in recording, which is that suddenly it became a lot cheaper to do things. And so, mm-hmm. and photography, same thing in photography, became a lot easier to do mediocre work. And so I'm sure that at one point you started having to compete with people that kind of suck, um, who were not real artists. Um, same as with a bunch of recording engineers had to deal with this, photographers had to deal with this. But I think at the end of the day, um, you're winning because you are a real artist and uh, you make your clients happy and they love your work and that you know you do that long enough and you will outlive shitty trends like horrible graphic design, for instance. I think the key to it is getting the balance between being feeding your artistic desires and making other people happy is to pick the right projects. Because in the beginning, I would be just, I was so into like the Pink Floyd aesthetics and I would work with death metal bands and I would try to force this one. I mean, when I was just starting out, first couple of years maybe, I would try to force this aesthetic on a project that doesn't fit just because I was not really into this specific band. But after a while, when you get to work on stuff that you really am excited about, when I was working with death metal bands that I was really into and not just local bands that I had to take because I needed the work, I would be just so immersed into it that I would not need to go to my like safe places when I would use the stuff that I'm used to, but actually be a part of a team, be a part of a collaboration, think about what will, will benefit this record. And this is how I came up with some of my favorite stuff for bands like Hate Eternal and Incantation. That's because I was aware 
of what I love about death metal aesthetics and how can I contribute to it and push it further. And same thing with Arcspire as well. So you bring up an interesting point about teamwork um, and how important it is for you to be able to work at a team and that's something that that's something that I think is important no matter what role you inhabit in uh, in this whether you're a guy in a band or the manager or the producer you know everyone has to understand their place and their role in making everything work and you very rarely can have people that just say you know my way or the highway go fuck yourself everybody else I mean there's a lot of people who try to be that way but it in the end, in most successful situations, that doesn't work out. However, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, we're talking all about being obsessed and yeah. so singularly mindedly focused. So, such <laughs> that sounded weird, but having such a singular mm. focus, it's kind of hard to be a team player when you're that. Focus, because when you're that focused, you kind of need to have a very strong vision for what's right, you know, and for where something should go. Unless you're so inspired and excited about the team's vision as well. So this is the the same hack I was just telling you about getting the right projects that your expectations meet their expectations, because you both actually look at it as a collaboration you're both excited to be doing this thing together and that just overrides because i'm not naturally a team player i'm not naturally a guy who walks <laughs> plays well with others but because i love this music because i love the bands that i work with i just come to it from a very healthy place of a place where i me and them share the same vision about what would benefit this record. I think that that's a great way to put it, a hack, because learning or being a team player is something you can totally learn how to do. It's not something like talent that either you have or you don't have. Yeah. It's a skill that you can learn, and you kind of have to learn. And this is another thing that bring, brings us back to what you said about all of this like self-help, uh, how to network, how to be better at self-confidence, how to be better at, uh, I mean, all of those fake it till you make it uh, YouTube instructors that you have right now, that they just look like, I don't know, a pale version of somebody who tries to act in a certain way. And at the end, if you listen to tons of them, it just, it contradicts itself because they basically all go for the fake it till you make it approach. But at the end, they tell you, and you know what? People are really drawn to people who are genuine. So yeah, at the end, be in a genuine position. Work hard in order to get yourself to a place where you don't need to fake being excited about working in this team because you really want to be there. You really want to work with these guys because you appreciate them. You appreciate the music. You appreciate their craft and you're excited about doing it together. Well, I think fake it till you make it. There's a way to do it right and a way to do it wrong. And the way that you just said it is the way to do it wrong, which is to be fake about your excitement, lie to people about that, and totally be that's. But the way that you can get away with it is like say that you are very excited about something, and you know 
that you can kill it, but you may not have as much experience as they think they're looking for. And you're 100% sure that you can crush this project. Okay, oh, I get it. But you just, won't, you just won't get that chance, though, because you don't have as much experience. You can fake that one till you make it. That, I mean, tons of successful people have done that version of fake it till you make it. I have a few times, it, it works. And it's not a lack of being genuine, it's just the other person doesn't understand what you're going to bring to the table because they don't know you yet. And so you're actually doing them a favor by kind of stretching the truth because you're going to do such a great job for them that they're going to be really, really happy that they took mm-hmm. a chance on you. But they won't take a chance on you unless you say some what they're wanting to hear because your lack of experience or whatever it is could scare them. Um, so, you know, th- that's the way that I look at fake it till you make it. Um, that's what I mean when I tell people to do it. The way that you said it, I definitely think people should not do. And I mean, that is kind of being a bit of a punisher. And you see a lot of it. <laughs> you see a lot of it. And uh, especially at trade shows like NAM, and it sucks. <laughs> Nobody likes it. I, I can only imagine. I was, ne- I was never in, in a situation like that. But, you know, I'm not knocking down people who are into. Um, marketing who are into uh, progressing professionally. Some people are really excited about getting better at being a professional. But if you're not, then I think it's a better usage of your time to just get so good at your craft that you'll end up in in situations where you don't need to fake anything. Yeah, I guess the one thing though is if you have a job where you don't have to be next to the band at all all day long you can get away mm-hmm. with being a little bit more of a weirdo but yeah say a recording engineer can't do that because they have to sit there with the band all day every day you know they have to so if the band if you don't feel like being social you have to fake it you can't like you know actually i just got off with tom lord algae and one mm-hmm. thing that we were talking about was that as an intern, like what's the biggest thing that an intern needs to learn how to do in order to not get fired? And he said, it's shut your mouth. And yeah. it doesn't matter if your dog just died or you know your girlfriend broke up with you. Every day is a good day. And you have to take that vibe with you to the studio. Whereas you know if you're just the mixer, a lot of the times you're working by yourself. So if you're in a bad mood or don't feel like being around people or whatever, you know, you can kind of shield other people from that. I imagine it's the same with being an artist, but there still comes a point where you have to be in contact with them. And if you're not cool, mm-hmm. they might not come back to you. They just might not. Yeah, I'm not saying be an asshole and just disregard the basic laws of human interaction. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, just use common sense. Seriously, just act as as if you you would like to be treated, and that's like a, as long a, as you're a very, not a masochist. As not, uh, yeah, never thought about it. I'm just my entire <laughs> argument just crumbled. I'm just I'm just kidding. I need, need to regroup and think about it. <laughs> no, but yeah, what you're saying about yeah, because I'm in a in a position where I can be a weirdo because I don't have this like day to day interaction. I made most of my album covers like wearing sweatpants. That's just the way it is, and I couldn't pull that same thing off here if I was an intern and uh, 
in a studio environment. Yeah, I totally get it. You know, you have to do the customer service thing, which does yeah. involve a little bit of fakeness at times. But but the thing that's not fake is, or should not be fake, is your passion for for uh, what it is that you're doing, in my opinion. So even if the recording engineer is having a bad day, but they can't uh, show it because they can't vibe out the band, you know, the passion for recording shouldn't be affected by a bad day. Maybe the key is just not just don't act like somebody else, but filter the stuff about you that won't contribute to this very moment. That's a good one. I, I've actually been working on that a lot um, for the past <laughs> 10 years, maybe. Have you been punishing? No, I don't think I've ever really been a punisher, but I think that uh, I am intense. I'm very intense. Like I can be very deadly with my words, and I have very high standards, and I expect a lot out of people. And when I was younger, that sometimes came out in not the best ways um, mm-hmm. because I didn't know how to process my frustration with people. Um but maybe you made friends for life because of it. I did, because there are people who have understood me. We understand each other. So maybe that's the same thing, like high stakes, high losses, but high rewards as well. Absolutely, but I do have to say that my life is better now that I've kind of learned to filter myself more and you know, not say things that will completely crush somebody just because. But you know when to turn it on? When to turn it on in order to achieve these like high peaks of creativity, of connection? To a degree, yeah. All right. It's not gone at all. So it might not seem like it, but uh, what I do now still requires me to be creative, like when I was writing music. It's a different type of creativity, but the engine that runs it is the same. Like it's still the same thing that keeps me up at night and, um, you know, keeps me thinking all day long about it and that I'm always trying to find ways to do things better, differently, all that, all that same stuff. And if you don't find an outlet, you can be creative with your frequent flyer miles. <laughs> no, that, that's definitely so I don't go crazy. I always find a, a way to make this stuff work. That's why it's successful. But I guess I'm just saying that it's the same thing. And so there's in, lots of opportunities still for me to be that way with people. And I think that the fact that I've toned it down is part of, or toned it down and refined it is part of why mm-hmm. URM's working. Because if I w- w- acted in URM the way I acted in my uh, 20s, <laughs> right? yeah, who knows? But don't you get sometimes like great ideas or even like make good steps when you're, Stressed yes, when you're absolutely. super worried, when you're super not in your zone, not in your flowing state, or whatever. Hundred percent. And also, not everybody always agrees with me on these ideas, and I know I'm right, and mm-hmm. uh, and I had to fight because you know them being wrong about this and winning could change everything. And this is very similar to. Being in a band, or I think being, you know, a film director or whatever mm-hmm. producer is, uh, if you have a vision for something, it's your vision. It, hopefully, everyone can get on board, but really, only you can see what's in your mind, right? 
only you can yeah. hear the music in your head. So a great leader helps other people understand it their own way, but that's not always possible. And sometimes people just need to go along if you're right. And uh, you have to be able to stand up for what you think is right, because if not, bad ideas can win. Yeah, I am glad that I know how to turn it on, but uh, I try not to turn it on when I don't need to. Uh, let's put it that way. I totally get it. And even even with my walk, I mean, and have you seen what I did last year with Bloodbath? No, I'm going to look now, though. It's basically about, I mean, the album title is The Arrow of Satan is Drawn. They just gave me the album title and they said, just come up with whatever you think is your interpretation of the album title. And I just had a kid. Oh, that looks sick. And the first year, thank you, and the first year of having a kid was, I mean, the thing with, do you call it cot death or crib death? You think crib about death, it all yes, the time. Death. You think about it all the time, and because it's like for the first year, just some babies wake up. Sids, sudden infant death syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. I we bottled the equipment. You know the stuff that beeps when he stops breathing for a second, and we have like a baby monitor on him with a camera, and we hear him when he's sleeping and whatever. So I, that was in the back of my mind when I was... That's kind of creepy now that I see this cover yeah. and you're telling me that. Be, because that was my my visual vocabulary at that point in time. And so when they came to me with this album title, I was like, okay, the arrow of Satan is drawn. I don't want to do like um, a direct interpretation like a literal interpretation of uh, album titles never that never uh, looks good it always come out silly and uh, cheesy so it's like okay just satan is waging a war which is drawing the the arrow waging a war on the innocent or like the righteous so i said okay he would just strike their first bone when they're sleeping and that was born out of a year of basically being anxious and worried and I mean fear was a big thing from the moment I woke up to the moment I managed to get to sleep and I think that's uh, that's a good way to channel all the negativity you know that's one of the best ways I think to channel the negativity I mean what would you do if you didn't have that outlet oh I would be it would multiply itself because I would be so unhappy with the stuff I would come up with creatively, but still be worried, I mean, at the same time. And this is like the album cover I'm most uh, proud of of the last year, because it was just, I don't know, it just looks different, and I felt it, I was excited about the idea from the moment I thought about it. When you came up with it, uh, were you thinking directly, were you thinking, this is what I just went through or I'm going through, this is that's how it's linked or the idea no. just came to you it just came to me and just uh, but this is like very uh, bargain bin psychology but you know it has to be because of uh, the first year of being a dad because of thinking about creep death for so 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 much it has to creep into your mind and change your subconscious but this is like a very literal way of it and i guess this is a good outlet to all the negative stuff. I mean, I did some stuff about insanity 
last year as well, the album I did with Sai, and another album cover I did for a band called Artisan. What are the names of the albums? The album from Artisan is called The Hangman. It's a single. I can't remember how I came up with it. It's not coming up because I guess there's so many things called The Hangman or Artisan. Ah, yeah. Artisan with a Z. Oh, okay. So I was just, I can't can't remember, but uh, I was probably thinking about death a lot during that time. But I I never... (laughs) I never think too much about it. I never read too deeply into my own subconscious. I just look at it as stories. I just have these stories that uh, pop into my head. And nothing fucked up about that one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I just, uh, most of the time, you just, you know, you take a shower and you think about something twisted and weird. And, uh, and then I have to think about, have I seen it yet? Have I seen it on something else? And if I never ever seen it on an album cover or as an as a painting, in any way, I ju- I just go out and flesh it out. And usually, even I usually just sketch it out, and I will find the right project to pitch it for. I mean, usually bands write to me and they tell me about the lyrics, they tell me about the album title, and I usually go, okay, I had this idea in my head for a while. Let's Let's try and fit this into what uh, you are going for. Because usually if uh, you're a band and you're looking for a visual artist, you're looking for somebody who will bring his own interpretation. Yeah, and I I can confirm that's true. Uh, The guy that my band used to hire is named Jordan Haley. I love the stuff he did on your guitar. Oh, yeah, he's great. On the Iceman. Yeah, it was awesome. Have you seen uh, his site, Bird of Prey? Yeah, I have. I think he does like jewelry as well, right? Yeah, lots of jewelry. I think he's great. And uh, But the, it's true. Like The reason I worked with him was because I know that whatever idea I give, it's his interpretation is going to be something that he's definitely going to bring, no matter what I say. That interpretation's coming. And it's generally something I really, really like. I think that that's absolutely true. You don't. I've learned that you don't want an artist who's going to just listen to you <laughs> exactly because you probably don't have great ideas. That's why you're not the artist. But sometimes you are. You brought up Testament earlier, and Eric actually is the one who does all the album covers with me. And He's got like a great visual taste and he's actually very uh, talented when it comes to visuals. Uh, the first album we did together, which was Formation of the Nation, he did the initial sketch with pencils. And I think I just colored over it. I don't think I ever I even changed anything on his original composition. I just painted on top of it. How often does that happen, though? Rarely. But when it happens, it's amazing because it's not about ego. You want to do what's best for the record you want to i mean when you do it from this angle of being a huge fan of albums when you do it from this angle of being a huge fan of music you care more about the record than you care about putting your artistic stamp on it because there's no room for ego when it comes to making a great record i think Yeah, I mean, it's the same as when a band comes to a producer and they've written an incredible song that doesn't need changing. Um, You know, it doesn't need much changing. It just needs production. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's important to know your role. And if your role is 
not to come up with the original idea because someone already made the sketch and the sketch is great. You just need to bring it to life. I think it's very mature to understand that. But like you said, you also said about Testament earlier that that whole situation is a rare one where you get to do stuff far in advance and just sounds like Testament is kind of their own thing. But it's rewarding at the end because this is like one of my most popular pieces and people I just see it uh, in exhibitions people come to me and they show me their tattoos of it and this is amazing to see but when it comes to um, what you said about producing when you get a a huge song what we do is basically we are all multipliers serving a song if the main thing about the record is the song then everything that we do whether if it's production or the logo, or the band photo, or the artwork, we can add another dimension to it that will inspire the viewer's imagination and get him closer to what the artist, the band, had in mind. But if the song is not there, then we are just multiplying by zero and we'll get zero. But if the song... Yeah, we're all fucked. (laughs) For sure. But sometimes the song is just so, so, so great. I mean... You, you talked about the, the Black Album and, you know, the album cover didn't inspire anybody to ta- tattoo it on, on themselves. But, you know, Enter Sandman is just so catchy that it doesn't didn't even matter. So when people ask me about the importance of artwork, I think it's the same as the importance of production or band photos. I mean, nothing part of the song is mandatory, but everything could be potentially crucial. I mean, when you talk about how important can an album cover be, just ask Iron Maiden. If you want to ask how important can like a drawing of a skull can be, ask the Misfits. How important can a top hat can be, just ask Slash. Or how important uh, can be a pointy bra, ask Madonna. Anything can be a good multiplier when it comes to the song, but you need to have the song there that will connect with people. And then is where we step in. And we can be important too. Is that so? I guess that definitely um, reinforces what you said earlier about working on working with good projects that you're excited about. Because there's also you know much more of a possibility that there's going to be a good song involved. Yeah, for for sure, and it benefits both parties because all the amazing artwork that Iron Maiden had wouldn't go anywhere. If the song's never connected with anybody, and same with uh, the Misfits t-shirts, it has to be this rare occasion where everything else and the music work together. So speaking of, um, I guess, that your role is to multiply, it's kind of like a force multiplier, I, I like thinking about it that way. Yeah, my, my grandmother was a math teacher, <laughs> so I guess... Uh, it's it's easier to me to visualize stuff in this way. Yeah, I it it makes sense. Um, so the art is you know obviously it's your take on things like the crib, uh, mm-hmm. but it's through you know through their I don't want to say medium, but the platform that they're providing. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, when it's all done, approved, printed, you know. You're on to the next thing. Yeah. Where do the originals go? Like, do you hang on to them? Do you sell them? Like, are they? Do you care about them? I, I do, but a lot of my my stuff, I do in a way of like it's mixed media. That uh, at the end, I have to involve um, 
a digital painting as well over them. So some of these album covers don't even have an original. So this is, and it couples with the fact that uh, originals are problematic to have in uh, all of my exhibitions that I do are in heavy metal festivals. And in these settings, it's problematic to bring uh, originals. You definitely don't want to bring them. <laughs> For sure. You don't want to be in a situation where it's like, oh, you spilled beer on it, you just bought it. With a print, it's better to have this conflict because it's not a one of a kind. But even even with the prints, I make sure that everything is like exactly like you, it would be if it would, would be the original. And this is why, and this is something kind of new when it comes to the world of uh, music festivals because this I mean we only started doing exhibitions over the last I think like four years or so. I've seen it pop up in many European festivals, but it's amazing to see how people react to it. It's amazing to see. I mean, the surprise people have on their faces when they see this album cover that they used to see only on their phone. They see it like all framed and hanged on the wall. And people just stand next to it and just stare at it for minutes. I've had that experience as well. I mean, when you see that, first of all, when sometimes when you see the scale of these things, because you're used to seeing it, you know, like thumbnail size or iPhone size, you're not used to seeing it large. Mm-hmm. Um it uh it can be very very impressive and very striking. But that's another thing that helped me um, get my work to become better. The the whole high, uh, phone thing because if your composition looks good as a thumbnail when you look at it over the phone, then it won't crumble when you look at it uh, like from far away when you don't get to see this uh, this piece of art not up close. And composition and basic structure are things that you need to step away a little bit from. So I actually been using the phone in order to get my composition to compositions to be better. I think it would be the same thing as in audio uh, listening oh, yeah. on consumer speakers at some point, just to make sure <laughs> that uh, that everything's okay in the consumer realm. I, I think it's a similar similar sort of thing. Yeah. For sure, because it's all basically what for waveforms and, and visual forms. It's all uh, it's the same thing. I mean, dyna- we all deal with dynamics. We all use shadows and lights. We all use composition and build up and storytelling devices. And it's all going to be displayed in a less than ideal medium or in a less than ideal setting. So you have to optimize for it. And plus, I think like limitations, you can just convert them into challenges and they sometimes even can drive your creative force. Because sometimes you, when you, it's like uh, option paralysis. When you have a lot of time, when you have free hand to do whatever you want, where there are no limitations, it's hard to get, just get started even. So do you know that uh, Kelvin and Hobbes uh, strip yeah, when, uh, of course. Where Kelvin says creating art should be in a, in only this like one specific state of of creativity, and uh, Hobbes asks him what kind of state is it, and he's like last minute panic. <laughs> There's a little bit of truth, but a lot of untruth to that. Oh, well, for sure. Yeah, S- some projects are for sure ended up uh, being horrible because they were rushed. But some people just need uh, the right incentive to get things done. I think we're at a 
good place to end it, but I want to ask you this one last thing. Sure. Because you brought it up. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Working in a state of last-minute panic is a bad idea, and it's a quick recipe for ruining things. And the hardest thing to do sometimes is just get started. Uh, how do you get yourself started when you're not feeling inspired or excited that day? Because you could be excited about a project, but just not feeling into it that particular day. Um, and how do you get yourself there? What helps me specifically is that I just step away from from even like pencil and paper when I'm thinking about the initial concept. When if you look at me from the side when I come up with these initial concepts, you will see me just you know walking the dog, going around in my apartment in circles like an insane person thinking about the concept. And I think this helps me be in a situation where I need to figure it out in order to sit down and do the actual work, actual starting to draw, starting to paint. And I think this method uh, is very much beneficial to keeping a balance between your work and the conceptualizing stage. I totally agree with you. It's, it's funny to me that sometimes people say, just power through it. Sometimes that's not the way to get, you know, that's not the way to turn the light bulb on. Sometimes you turn the light bulb on by getting some distance. No, in, in my situation, you just don't even start. You just go around your apartment in circles thinking about <laughs> stuff. And the thing is, it works like a spring because at, this, at the point where you get this idea, you're just so excited about sitting down and do it that it acts as. Um, as like fire under your belly. So basically what you're saying is you know how to get the engine going uh, when it doesn't want to go. Yeah, because physically you just want to sit down, you just want to get started on the walk. You're just you're so excited about leaving this stage and moving on to the next, and then you're just physically happy about changing this state, uh, like physical state. You're happy to go on and start working on your idea. And, and it's rewarding as well. You feel like, okay, I'm done. It's like marking a V next to a step, next to a stage. So when you're not feeling into it, you don't just sit down and do it. What you do is you... I never sketch. Yeah, you get yourself into it. Yeah, I never sit down with like a piece of paper and just scribble away. And this, is, this connects a little bit with what I said earlier about uh, getting good at your craft. I'm not even talking about practicing I'm talking about like experimenting because I never practice. If because I know that if I would just sit all day and draw skulls in order to get so good at it that when the album cover comes that I need to paint a skull, it will be so perfect. I would do it out of when I do it, I will do it out of like a memory muscle, and it will lack the excitement and that initial spark of experimentation about it. So. Basically, a lot of the stuff I do, when I do it, I do it for the first time because I never practice it. And it's kind of problematic because you have to learn it as you go along. So you ended up redoing a lot of stuff. But when you come up with something that sticks, it's already on the canvas. It's already there. And you're so excited about it because it's like bands that are that that have this like sound about them, this energy about them in their demo, but then they never carry it out to the first album. There's something about 
this initial raw primal spark of doing something for the first time, being in a territory where it's uncharted for you, in a, in a place where you're not in your comfort zone, it just, it opens up a door for happy accidents. And that's how you get, that's how you cheat in getting something original. That's another hack. That's a good one. That's a very, very good one. I, I like it. You don't play. You just get right to it. And if you're not ready to get right to it, you get yourself ready. You play while the project is on. It's like you play where the, when the stakes are high and it puts the pressure on you and you can convert it into excitement. Well, that's awesome. And let's end it at that. It's been great talking to you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming. With you as well, man. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally did it. Glad to. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast has been brought to you by Telefunken Electroacoustic. Telefunken Electroacoustic has been following the tradition of excellence and innovation set forth by the original Telefunken GmbH of Germany that began over 100 years ago. With one foot rooted in the rich history of the brand, and the other in new microphone innovations for both stage and studio applications. Telefunken Electroacoustic is recognized as one of the industry leaders in top quality microphones. For more info, go to t-funk.com. If you like the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, make sure you leave us a review, subscribe, and send us a message if you want to get in touch.